I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here. So much more importantly, the author of 15 books. Her latest is Before the Alamo. She's also the subject of a documentary. She's the subject, she was the subject of a long radio series before she became her own uh, podcast and talk show host, radio talk show host. And uh, she has put together an unbelievable career that's still going strong. Before the Alamo is her latest. Everyone must get this. But uh, there's a chapter that, that didn't quite make it, and it, it hit the cutting room floor, as they, as they say. Yes. And, and we're going to get a, a treat. We're going to hear about this, and, and her writing is so terrific. If you haven't gotten the book, please get the book Before the Alamo. And when you hear what was taken out, you can imagine what, how good everything else is that, that made it in there for all different reasons. Doc, how are you? I'm doing okay, thanks, Frank. And I understand you are too. So we're we're uh, some of we're exceptions, I guess. <laughs> we haven't uh, we haven't succumbed to uh, uh, to COVID, although you did have a bout of it. Yeah, and you. We should let everyone know because we've mentioned it. You know that you were concerned about it. That you're fine and you're negative, and uh, and and you're in good shape. That's right. I'm. Uh, I, I've had three shots, and I'm sure I have been exposed. I just uh, given uh, uh, Omicron and and how contagious it is. There's no way that I could not have been exposed because I have gone shopping, I've uh, I have gone to meetings, and so on and so forth. Uh, and although most people uh, here in San Antonio do wear masks when they're out in public. Uh, there are those diehards, the anti-vaxxers, and there are lots of those in Texas um, who do not wear, um, militantly do not wear masks uh, and uh, are perfectly happy to uh, sneeze and cough all over you if they're close to you. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, I have been uh, sprayed by uh, someone who came up behind me in the grocery store and uh, and sneezed and coughed and uh, uh, so, and I felt the his saliva hitting the back of my neck. Oh my he was God. that close. Wow. Yeah, that was some weeks ago. Uh, so I know I had, didn't catch anything from him. <laughs> but, Under normal circumstances. But anyway, that, uh, so I've been very lucky. Under normal circumstances, that's still disgusting. But during a pandemic, it's unforgivable. <laughs> why? Yes. Would, yeah. Why would you sneeze anywhere near anyone else without covering up? And why would you? Uh, it, why would you not wear a mask? When it's uh, when it's suggested by all reasonable bodies to do so, but anyway, that's uh, that's a whole subject for a whole other conversation. So, right, yes, and what I want to talk about today, uh, this is actually something uh, which is not exactly an excerpt from Before the Alamo, my latest book that Frank was just talking about, which, by the way, is. At five ninety nine, uh, the ebook is five ninety nine. I may lower that one of these days soon. Uh, uh, and I think it's around sixteen something. Um, the paperback version at Amazon, and at Barnes and Noble, and so on. And just about any bookstore will get it for you if they don't have it in stock. Um, and it is a story that begins in eighteen fourteen as a result 
of the Battle of the Medina River, which was part of the Mexican uh, rebellion against Spain, against Spanish rule. And that was a war that, uh, that Mexico began, the fight for independence, and it began in 1810 and ended when Spain finally gave up in 1821. And uh, the excerpt or the dropped chapter uh, is called The Flood of 1819. Now, Texas history books will talk about the floods in San Antonio, perhaps, the major floods, and they will tell you that they took place in 1898, 1913, and 1921. And in 1921, the city downtown San Antonio was pretty much ruined uh, by a major flood, and it caused all kinds of consequences, a dam on the Antonio River, or actually not right on the river, but on the uh, drainage areas that would, in flood, heavy rain conditions would flow into the river and cause uh, downtown to flood, because downtown San Antonio is built in a kind of cup, um, and it filled up several times, um, and with with disastrous consequences, of course. But the irony of it all is that anything that happened before the Battle of the Alamo, which took place in 1836, uh, there's nothing in history books in Texas because the Anglos who flooded in after the Battle of the Alamo and took possession of Texas, uh, they uh, simply don't believe that anything real of importance happened before the Battle of the Alamo, so they don't bother. <laughs> right. The book, uh, Before the Alamo, by title, uh, is uh, to fill in people's uh, lacking history, <laughs> lacking knowledge of the history of what happened uh, to a large chunk of the South, uh, Southwest before that battle, in particular, of course, Texas. So... Uh, the reason I dropped the chapter from the book is because, although it is exciting, as you will see, and uh, and terrible, <laughs> and all the rest, uh, it does not further the plot of the book. And editors will tell authors that they must kill their sweethearts, their favorites, uh, and drop them if they do not further the plot of the book, and so that's why I dropped it, but I'm going to share it uh, with my listening public right now, so I'm going to read this, um, but before I do, I need to t give you a little background so it'll be intelligible. The characters are, the main characters are Lieutenant Juan Andres Altamirano, who fought on the King of Spain's side uh, against the insurrectionists, uh, the revolutionaries, uh, and he was found himself in the um, Battle of Medina River, where Texas troops fought against the Royalists and lost, and were uh, were slaughtered by the Royalist troops. Uh, he was on the Royalist side, so he survived that battle. Um, and there were a number of royalists in uh, San Antonio uh, at the time, 
And the general who won the battle, uh, Joaquin de Arredondo, uh, came into San Antonio after uh, finishing the slaughter of, of the 1,800 men who fought against him. Uh, and he continued to kill anybody who was a sympathizer of the revolution. And so he killed virtually every man in San Antonio except for those who had escaped to Louisiana, to New Orleans. And um, anyway, so uh, Juan Andres uh, had to flee the anger of uh, General Arredondo when he found out that the rest of his family was on the revolutionary side and had fled. Um, and so he uh, was exiled by the general and and came back to San Antonio on the general's orders in order to help him figure out whether some of the remaining men in San Antonio were on uh, the royalist side or not. Uh, so that's how the story begins with him coming back and finding out that he had a daughter because he took refuge uh, from Arredondo's fury with uh, a servant woman who, who uh, was a, an Indian woman with whom he uh, spent a couple of nights, and the result was a little girl who was born nine months later when he was called back by General Arredondo. And the little girl is five years old in uh, 1819. Her name is Emilia, and she remains unacknowledged by her father. Uh, he treats her as this servant woman's daughter, a servant woman named Maria. His wife, who had been in New Orleans, has come back. Her name is Carmen, so she's back in San Antonio. And, of course, there are is General Arredondo and the soldiers in the background. They're going to have a background uh, role in this story. And there are a couple of vocabulary words that you ought to know about. One of them is jacal, J-A-C-A-L. And the J in Spanish is, is a J sound, as in Mexico, um, which often is interchanged with X. X and J are interchangeable. A hakal is a hut made of mud and tree branches with a thatched roof and usually a dirt floor. And that was the housing of the servants of San Antonio at the time. And of course, Maria and Emilia live in one of those in the hakal, uh, which has a uh, a cow hide or a buffalo hide for a door and a mud or, or dirt floor. Uh, and uh, then they work in the kitchen. And in San Antonio in those days, the house itself, so the residence, was separated from the kitchen. The kitchen was out back as a separate building uh, because of the danger of fire and also of course, uh, the, all the food smells and so forth should be kept separate, they thought, from the house. So the cooking was, uh, the, the meals were carried into the house as quickly as possible so they wouldn't get cold and served in the dining room on the dining table. Um, so there's the hakal and the kitchen separate from the house and then the stone house uh, where the master's uh, Juan uh, 
Juan Andres and Carmen live. And um, the other word is, uh, the Spanish word that you'll encounter is acequia, spelled A-C-E-Q-U-I-A, acequia, which is an irrigation canal or ditch bringing water from the river, from the San Antonio River, to the gardens of the people of the town. Uh, and um, so the, the the town of San Antonio was a collection of stone houses or adobe houses, and it had uh, two main squares and the cathedral, or rather the church, it wasn't yet a cathedral, was a very large building right in the middle of the, of the town. <clears throat> and the mission, uh, which had been decommissioned by that time, uh, the mission was being used as a barracks for the uh, royalist soldiers, the occupying force. Uh, and uh, so that's referred to as the mission, and it later became known, not too long afterwards, became known as the Alamo, probably because it had a, uh, a street of uh, Alamo trees, that is, cottonwood trees, uh, in front of it. And um, then I need to say that San Antonio was known as Bejar de San Antonio, and Bejar, B-E-X-A-R, is now pronounced as bear, because Americans find it hard to say, huh. <laughs> so it's Bear County that we live in, but we call our city San Antonio rather than Bejar de San Antonio. So you'll you'll hear the word Bejar several times also. Uh, and with with that, um, I will begin the story. Uh, are there any questions, Frank? No, it, uh, that's uh, no, that's uh, well laid out, and it's just a reminder of uh, of how how interesting this book is so and and by the way a big treat too uh, you don't usually hear an author pull a whole chapter and then read it to you so please go ahead i won't i won't interrupt okay here we go summer came june weather was increasingly hot <coughs> and there had been no rain since the end of the second week july threatened to be even more unbearable Flies swarmed through the kitchen windows, attracted by moist food smells. All sorts of creeping insects appeared also in the, in the hakal and even in the stone house, looking for cool shade. The river level fell, but typical for Behar, humidity remained high. Maria and Emilia went to bed on July 5th, perspiring in the foggy air rising from the river. Far to the north, they could hear the growl of thunder. Maybe it will rain tonight, Mama. Maybe, but it has thundered before, and not a drop of rain here. They drifted off to sleep, but Amelia woke when a blinding flash of light illuminated the cacao, followed almost immediately by an earth-shaking boom. She rose, trying not to disturb her mother, who had slept through the noise. She padded to the door and pulled the cowhide curtain aside. All was silent, and then a few huge raindrops began to plop into the dust beyond the threshold. Dawn light showed gray in the east. 
she was on her way to lie down again when she felt the earth tremble beneath her feet. The hair on the nape of her neck and on her arms stiffened. Now she could hear a roar. Mama, Mama, wake up. Something terrible is happening. Maria sat up, eyes wide, staring around her. What's that roaring? Then, abruptly, something struck the side of the hakal with great force and just as quickly rushed through the door. Water, rushing, powerful water. Come, mija, that's, that's my daughter in Spanish. Come, mija, we must warn our people in the house. They found they could not run the short distance to the back entrance. The force of the water was nearly irresistible. It reached their knees before they got inside the door. Senora Carmen, Juan Andres, get up, flood, water everywhere. They ran through the rapidly filling house. Juan Andres appeared in his nightshirt, sloshing toward his wife's bedroom. Come, Carmen, get up, we must save ourselves. The water was now knee-high inside. Carmen came to the door, a simple shift pulled over her head. What shall we take? Maria shouted over the noise of the rushing water. Yourselves, nothing more. Juan Andres stopped long enough to pull on a pair of trousers, grabbed up Emilia, and ordered his wife and Maria to follow him. They heard a cracking sound from behind the house over the continued roaring. Maria had made her way to the back door. The hakal in the kitchen. The water has swept them away. Juan Andres shouted, out the front door, now. He managed to keep his feet, carry Emilia, and somehow support his wife, the least able to withstand the current and debris hurled against them. He looked wildly for something solid to climb on. There's no way to reach the old mission, he gasped. Look, that live oak at the end of the street. They struggled in that direction, Juan Andres and Maria keeping Carmen upright in the rushing water, halfway up their thighs and rapidly rising. Emilia wrapped her arms around Juan Andres's neck as he fought the current and batted away floating objects that became projectiles. They headed for the huge oak tree on Real Street. Its horizontal limbs drooped five feet above the water, so it should be easy to climb, unless... By some miracle, they reached it, and Juan Andres perched Emilia in the crotch of a limb, then lifted Carmen beside her. Next, he turned to Maria, who had expected no help from her master. A second low-bending branch offered a refuge, and she leaped, using the current to boost her, grasped the branch, and with the strength of desperation, pulled herself up until she lay with her body along the branch. Andres joined her, and their combined weight bent the branch within a few inches of the flood. <clears throat> we must climb higher, Juan Andres gasped. Emilia gave a little scream and pointed. A dead body, a man, floated under them, dressed in a nightshirt. His face was torn and disfigured by a collision with something, perhaps the wall of a stone house. He floated on too quickly for them to identify him. Emilia, too shocked, did not cry. By now, the sun had risen, illuminating the bizarre scene through heavy clouds, and they could see their town amidst the waters that had filled the valley of Behar like a huge cup. 
hardly anything other than the church still stood, and it too seemed heavily damaged. Hakales had been swept away, and the adobe buildings were melting ruins, collapsing before their eyes. Some stone houses were damaged worse than the church, walls partially tumbled or tumbling down, the mortar between the stones melting. Worst of all, they could see many bodies of the drowned, both human and animal. Any horse, cow, sheep, pig, or goat that had been enclosed in a barn or tethered had drowned. The water still rushed swiftly as it drained southeastward toward the gulf, and the bodies of man and beast alike bobbed along downstream toward a salty grave. Here and there they could see another tree loaded like this one with survivors. Emilia shifted her position on the tree limb, rubbing at the red spots and bruises caused by collisions and debris from the climb and the pressure of her weight against the rough bark. She glanced toward the Alamo, visible from their elevation in the tree. The soldiers were busy hammering and tying boards together. Look, Juan Andres, the soldiers are working on something. In the distance, they could see Arredondo soldiers still billeted in the old mission, busy dragging wooden planks to the water's edge. The echoes of hammer blows reached them across the water. Juan Andres shaded his eyes. They're building rafts. General Arredondo ordered them to watch us to keep us from treason against the king. But I guess they don't want all of us to drown. Carmen spoke for the first time since they had reached the tree. Thank God our prayers have been answered. God has softened their hearts. They watched with eager attention as the first raft was launched. Carmen whimpered in disappointment when the soldiers pulled to a neighboring tree instead of theirs. One man held the raft in position, braced against the tree, while the second helped three people onto the raft. They turned the craft back toward the Alamo, but shouted first, We'll come for you next. Emilia pointed, Look, another raft. They held their breath, watching to see where this raft would go. It struggled against the current and fended off a massive roof beam floating on a collision course. One soldier turned the beams to float parallel to the raft, then gradually to slip beyond it. Once the raft had freed itself, it lurched in their direction. But Maria shook her head. It's still in trouble. Look, a drowned horse is headed straight for it. The two soldiers saw the heavy corpse before it collided with them. While one man dug his pole into the earth, the other pushed the dead horse toward the shore so that it, too, slid along the side of the raft and floated on southeastward. Then they pulled toward Juan Andres's tree, the current constantly threatening to drag them off course. The nearest soldier called, Is that you, Lieutenant Altamirano? Yes, with my wife Carmen, Maria, and her child, he murmured to Carmen. He knows me from the store. I sold him a saddle when I helped out one day. Everything in the store is lost now, Carmen's voice broke. I fear everything in Behar is lost, including most of our neighbors. The raft docked against a tree. Emilia, Emilia looked into the soldier's eyes with a tremulous smile. What's your name, soldier? 
The soldier made another pass around the tree trunk with a rope. I'm Lieutenant Manuel La Fuente. He stretched his arms toward her. Come, little one, I'll take you on my shoulders. Lieutenant, sir, help your wife get on the raft. The second soldier stepped across with care, causing the raft to bob and wobble, tugging at the leather rope. He stretched his arms upward to help Carmen and then Maria. With each new passenger, the raft dipped and swayed and water slopped over the boards, making the surface slick. Everyone crouch down and be as still as possible. The way back will be doubly dangerous. The four passengers obeyed, and once they were still, the soldier turned to Emilia while his companion untied the rope. I'm Sergeant Antonio Menchaca at your service. He saluted her, and she gave him a tight, frightened smile. Once the rope was untied, the raft gave a lurch as if it would escape into the rushing current. The two soldiers managed to free it from the tree and start a laborious diagonal course for the mission. The raft pitched and swayed as the men struggled to maintain the course, and the passengers more than once feared for their lives, inserting their fingers in the cracks between the slippery planks and holding on as best they could. Only one obstacle threatened them as they made their way back, a pew from the church. This time, Juan Andres fended it off while the two soldiers bent their backs to the polling. Despite their best efforts, the current carried them farther east than they intended. As they bumped against what was now the shore, Carmen cried out in thanksgiving, tears of relief coursing down her cheeks. Gracias, mil gracias, mi Dios. Gracias, dulce Jesús. Gracias, Sagrada Virgen de Guadalupe. Thank Thanks, a thousand thanks, dear Lord. Thank you, sweet Jesus. Thanks, Holy Virgin of Guadalupe. She kept repeating her thanks as they slogged through the mud to higher ground. By sundown, all those who had perched in trees or whose stone houses had somehow withstood the force of the water had been pulled back to the east side of town. They climbed the hill to the mission. Antonio Martinez, the governor, and his family had made it out safely and huddled with the rest. Some survivors had escaped nearly naked. All were miserable, hungry, and oddly thirsty. Everything they owned, including the corn and other food supplies stored in their homes, was gone. Emilia spied Jose Antonio Navarro, her father's cousin, and ran to give him a soggy embrace. Senor Jose Antonio, I was so afraid. Is everyone here? And Don Juan Martin Veramendi? And cousins Josefa y Juana? Jose Antonio stroked her hair. All saved, thanks be to God. Emilia bowed her head. Yes, thank you, dear God, for saving all of us. Clean water to drink and to wash was available from the acequia and from the well inside the mission grounds, but food was scarce. The garrison at the mission had only enough food stored for themselves for another week. They divided what they had and led the survivors exhausted and in shock, some of them wounded, all of them hungry and destitute, into the mission grounds. They gave up their barracks beds so the survivors could get some rest. 
Lieutenant La Fuente chose 10 soldiers and sent them out in Paris to the ranches owned by the Tejano settlers. To, pardon me, to the Tejano settlers to hunt for game or wild cattle. Two days later, the governor borrowed paper, pen, and ink and wrote to the general commanding the eastern provinces, pleading for aid. He knew that any aid would be many days in arriving. Meanwhile, they would fend for themselves with the help of the wealthier soldiers' ranches, uh, settlers' ranches, I'm sorry, and with the wild game the soldiers would kill for them. They would have to keep a sharp lookout for Comanche raids, for Indians, for the Indians surely knew of their plight. And that's where this this chapter ends. It's it's such a descriptive chapter. It's a shame not to get it in there. And you know, I guess people, you know, I mean, you know, only you and people who read the book could uh, could know, uh, you know, whether it advances the the story or not. Uh, it does. It, it, it is descriptive, and it's, uh, you know, you know. Look, it's you got to make a choice as a, as a writer if they want you to cut down and cut out a uh, a, a chapter. It's 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 one of those things that's, uh, boy, that must have been hard to pull. That is a terrific, descriptive, uh, uh, dramatic chapter, and um, uh, yeah, I imagine it wasn't easy to pull that. Yeah, no, <laughs> but. But uh, I think the flow of the of the book is improved because I didn't have that current event uh, in there. I did leave the uh, the fire that destroyed the church uh, it, uh, a little later. I think it was in the early 1820s. Uh, I, had, I left that one in because it was very short. Uh, but uh, uh, the town rebuilt. Yeah. Uh, the Hakal the Hakales were easy to rebuild. Uh, the adobe houses took a little longer, and the stone houses uh, were mainly, uh, certainly the foundations and probably um, much of the walls were were still there. So, uh, so they uh, they rebuilt everything, and uh, and continued uh, happily gover- governing all most of Texas. Uh, Bejar de San Antonio was the largest town in. Uh, in the province of Texas at the time, and uh, and so its city council uh, governed the whole state really. And uh, Emilia then later on, uh, in two after two years, uh, learned to read. Uh, she went to uh, Jose Antonio Navarro uh, and asked him to teach her, and he took her on and did teach her to read. Uh, and she then became a page at the city council. Uh, he brought her in uh, because he uh, wanted her educated in some way and uh, listening to what was going on in the governance in the town, uh, he knew, would teach her a lot. Uh, and, of course, she was reading by then as well. So this story goes on with the girl growing and growing and having her adventures and her problems. And uh, and I'll leave it at that. You know, so yeah, just a just a thought you, you mentioned uh, in in the intro and, and given background, uh, you know I find it so difficult. But I you know I guess it's it, you know it was easier for certain certain men maybe even now. But I was going to say back then to 
disowned or never, and not that he disowned, he never took ownership of of his child. And to treat your own child as if it's uh, you know a servant's child uh, to me, and I guess that's that's commonplace. And back then, you know, when you're talking about 1810, 1819, 1817, you know, in those time periods, I mean, you know, keep in mind, slave owners did that all the time. But it's a uh, it, it it's a it, you know it's a very uh, disturbing for a family man or for uh, people that that uh, I guess just anybody that that has a heart. Um, it, it's so difficult to um, uh, to see that individual, uh, right? I mean, it, it's uh, it's 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 something that um, you know you have to put in there, and it's uh, and it's uh, it, it's certainly uh, very uh, you know very important for the character of the person. But you know, look, um, you know, if you could if you could deny having a child that uh, that you know is yours, it's. Boy, that's some uh, <laughs> that's some personality trait. Yes, yes. Well, of course, he uh, he makes it quite clear to Maria uh, that who who is treated as a slave actually, right. uh, because he bought her. Uh, he bought her on the uh, the border uh, with um, uh, with the province of I think it's Leon. Uh, province uh, in a town called Santa Barbara, which doesn't exist anymore. But anyway, he bought her on the slave market. Uh, and he and, and Maria are actually historical characters. I've changed uh, his name uh, because I was told that the family would sue me if uh, if I actually used their names. No kidding. Wow. Uh, so... <laughs> So, uh, in fear of being sued, I, uh, I made him uh, an Altamirano. Uh, I won't tell you his family, actual family name, but uh, the story um, of how he treated his, his daughter uh, is probably true, although uh, I use my imagination because the girl who was born in 1814 um, and uh, who had obviously a different name as well, uh, disappears from history. Uh, there's uh, supposedly another girl born to that family a year later who may, ha- uh, the year may have been confused. Uh, but uh, I did uh, did my research, and uh, I saw the birth record in the, uh, uh, in the church. Um, so in the actually in the archdiocese, uh, so I actually saw uh, Father Sambrano's handwriting as he recorded the birth of this girl, and it was 1814. And the girl who uh, is historical um, was born the following year, according to the census records. So, uh, and the the one in four, eight, born in 1814 just disappears. So uh, I. Uh, then took her and, of course, created her, according to my own <laughs> ideas and needs for the novel. But uh, it is absolutely true that slave owners uh, did not recognize their own children. Uh, it was particularly the case with children who were still uh, dark-skinned. Uh, in the case of Emilia, uh, she, of course, has slightly... Uh, 
darker skins from the Anglos, the, the uh, ones who have Irish ancestors or, uh, and such, uh, because she does have some Indian in her. Her mother was a pure-blooded Indian, um, who had been raised, by the way, uh, as a Spanish girl. She had been uh, uh, taken, taken from the tribe when she was a baby and raised as this gentleman who had taken her uh, as his daughter. Uh, and then when she reached uh, maturity, her beauty uh, uh, seduced him, and he raped her. And because uh, he considered her spoiled, <laughs> uh, she, the temptress, the daughter of Eve, had uh, had uh, caused him to, to do this terrible thing. And so he blamed her for it and sold her on the slave market. Uh, and that's all historical. Yeah. You know, just think, you know, just not not to go off on a tangent here, but as you were mentioning the the threat of a lawsuit, um, I, I I hearken back to the early days of uh, of CNN, and uh, and I, I was watching a, uh, and it sounds like it's it, it's irrelevant, but it's it's kind of a, a food for thought, and to to those listening. Uh, the the chapter you heard is from before the Alamo, uh, Dr. Weinberg's latest book. But uh, l- let me just say this: there was a there was a uh, a bar in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Dodger, and the owner of this bar put the logo of the former baseball team, you know, the team that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier on, right? And he used the logo for his uh, for his sports bar, and. Uh, it, it, there was uh, there was a lawsuit brought by uh, by Major League Baseball to get him to stop using the name and to stop using <coughs> the logo. So CNN was interviewing this man, and the place was jam packed. I mean, beyond jam packed. And they're talking to a smiling owner, and they said, "Well, how do you feel about being uh, by being sued by Major League Baseball?" And he says, "Well, it's their right to do." But, it, you know, he, he was laughing because as you look around the bar, it's jam-packed. And he's on CNN simply because he's being sued, right? He's being sued by uh, Major League Baseball to get him to stop using the name. I, you know, like in that case, you know, he may not even want to hire a lawyer. He'll just hire a publicist and, and, and get the publicity and get the place packed like that. And, and again, I know it's a different situation, but it's <laughs> food for thought. Right. If you uh, if you would have kept the name in and they started the lawsuit and you got, you know, maybe one of our listeners or somebody would handle the the lawsuit for free for you and you don't have to pay a legal fee. But maybe the publicity off of being sued, especially, uh, you know, when it's a you know, when when it's a, a situation where where a man bought someone in slavery. I don't know. That might be, a you know, that might be a public interest story. And I think a lot of people might get on your side, but again, that's that's a conversation for for a whole other day. But that, that's it's kind of interesting, right? The publicity that that something like that could bring, and it's a noble, you know, it, you know what you're writing about is, uh, it, you know, it's not that he's noble, but the fact that you're writing about it, and that and the fact that you made, um, you made your, your characters so strong and the female characters uh, strong. Uh, and you know, and especially in this this case, well, you know, somebody that that is so, certainly sympathetic, but somebody that is is someone we could admire. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, uh, of course. What I what my motive for writing this was 
in part, uh, not only to teach people that there was history before the Alamo, <laughs> but but also to uh, to teach people that the common people, the, uh, the even the slaves and the servants uh, and the children of servants who were not uh, considered uh, proper citizens at all, um, they had their own strengths and character and purpose and uh, and could make their way in the world and uh, were were to be respected. And uh, so I showed uh, I showed them in that light. And one of the excerpts that I read previously was uh, about how Amelia finds out where she ranks in the society of the time, which is uh, on a very low rung. Yeah. Um, and her mother, uh, her mother's ambition is for her to make something of herself. And because she, Maria, knows that uh, there's no chance for she, for her to make anything of herself, uh, but her daughter might. And uh, uh, so the book portrays uh, Emilia's struggle uh, during all kinds of difficulties and sometimes good fortune. And one of her really strokes of luck is choosing Jose Antonio Navarro to be her mentor. Um, and the fact that he understands most of the most of the town knew that this girl was uh, was uh, Juan Andres's daughter, <laughs> and that Juan Andres was hiding the fact and not acknowledging the girl. They all knew that anyway, uh, but they were honoring his uh, uh, his reticence and his feelings for maintaining his caste status. Uh, and so they never uh, upbraided him or teased him about it, uh, so he got away with it. Um, but much, much later, when uh, when Emilia actually does make something of herself, he, he finally does acknowledge her. Uh, so uh, ultimately she makes something of herself within the confines of the society at the time. Uh, but anyway, that's part of the book, and part of the uh, intent is to teach people uh, n not to scorn uh, what was going on in their own city. These San, Antonion, San Antonians who deign to read the book will be learning uh, that uh, interesting people lived back then, and had interesting stories, and they were to be respected as uh, uh, as part of the uh, uh, of the society of the time, and a very uh, uh, a very useful and worthwhile part of the society. Tremendous, tremendous work, and uh, a real treat to you know to hear an author read a a, a story. Uh, read a chapter that is not uh, is not included in, in a book that is just wonderful. Everyone's got to get this book. It's called Before the Alamo. And uh, Doc, thank you very much for sharing this. And, and if you have a final word, uh, please uh, please say it. 
Um, but uh, just congratulations on a wonderful, wonderful book and and, and for sharing a <laughs> a wonderful lost chapter. I guess this will be this will be known as people who get the book, uh, you know, in, in the future. This is a lost chapter, but they could hear it right here on the Florence Weinberg show. Any final words? Well, the final words are uh, don't consider Mexicans. When I grew was growing up in New Mexico. Uh, Mexicans were looked on, uh, they were called greasers, uh, and they were looked on as lazy, shiftless, ignorant, uh, and so on. And as it turns out, they were anything but. And uh, the Mexicans who were running their town, which was part of Mexico at the time, this San Antonio de Bejar, um were uh, brilliant people, intelligent people, capable people, uh, energetic and industrious people, uh, and and I simply wanted to correct the the uh, the general view still held by many people of Mexicans, especially those before the Anglo Anglo's took over and made everything right here in Texas. There was a civilization here that was quite correct, uh, even though it wasn't uh, it wasn't Anglo, it wasn't uh, white Protestant. Uh, it was a different one, but equally equally valuable and equally valid. And that's my final word for the day. Doc, wonderful once again, and to everyone out there, uh, we appreciate you listening each and every week. You can hear the Florence Weinberg Show on 124 different outlets and counting. There might be more by now, for all we know. Uh, Frank McKay signing off. Uh, you've been listening to an excerpt from Before the Alamo, a, a chapter that you won't he- see in the book, but you can hear right here. Please binge listen to everything else that we've been doing. Frank McKay signing off. We'll see you all next time on the Florence Weinberg Show. <laughs>